Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Morning, guys. There is a lot to go through today, as you just heard, so uh, you need to be prepared to be good listeners. It's going to be uh, a doozy. Um, this also might end up a little bit today, a little fire and brimstone which uh, maybe we like when it's negative one degrees outside. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's a little more appealing, uh, but it's going to be heavy. Um, and so uh, I, I want to sort of like apologize, not for the text or even the heaviness of it, but more so sort of the surprise. I admit it's like hard to like get all like kind of existential and think about hard and difficult things when you may not have like put yourself in that mood. It's kind of like a, a difficult gear to shift into for many of us. But I think uh, that God actually has something uh, important for us today, meaningful for us, challenging for us today. Um, a reality that is like clearly biblically present, but we don't really talk about it or think about it as often as maybe we should. Um, and it's this idea of what happens after we die, that there is a heaven and there is a hell and there will be people in both of those places. A thread that we're running or looking at uh, through all the parables that we're looking at today is this question, how do I get to heaven? Now you notice the language here is much more about like kingdom of heaven than it is like just heaven. And that's really much more often how Jesus describes it. Heaven not, is not so much like a cloud laden, you know, relaxation place or something like that. It's not like, you know, going to Strawberry Hot Springs. Uh, but rather it's the kingdom of God, which stands in opposition to the kingdom of this world. And one day after we all die, we're going to be put in one of those two places. To be welcomed into this kingdom is to recognize God as the one true king and to enjoy his reign and his love forever. So today Jesus tells us three surprising things about who is in and who is out. You guys just heard Aaron read the three parables. A parable is a real-life story that depicts a spiritual reality. A real-life story that depicts a spiritual reality. It's been a minute since we had a parable. Uh, we used to just be, you know, getting bludgeoned over the head with them in uh, Matthew. But now uh, we're back in it, and Jesus gives us three today. He's giving a real-to-you story so that you might understand the spiritual reality. And none of you probably own a vineyard or have an army that I'm aware of. So uh, I, I took a little bit of a license and made them a little bit more modern day. I hope that you'll allow it. Now, it might be a little bit confusing, actually. I'm going to put the actual parable on screen because I really love Scripture. It's more important than my stupid made-up parable. And then I'm going to share my made-up parable. So uh, you have to use both sides of your brain here. I don't know if it'll work out. You tell me if it actually is a good thing. So here goes the first parable. Suppose Aaron boy Aaron Nesbitt had two kids. I had to do a gender swap because uh, everybody that has exactly two kids in, in our church has a boy and a girl. So uh, here we go. He tells Warren to walk the dog. Warren says, why no, father? I do not wish to engage with this endeavor. You guys know how he talks, right? You guys have met Warren. Uh, and then he does it anyway. The next day, Aaron says to Margo, hey, walk the dog. Margo says, sure, Dad, and doesn't do anything. I don't know if this is an accurate story, uh, but for our example today, uh, it works. So the question that Jesus would ask for us in this parable is, who actually walked the dog? Who actually walked the dog? The answer is Warren, right? So that makes us ask the question to Jesus, what is the point of this one? 
Jesus says in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go in the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you by the way, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind to be- and believe him. Jesus here is letting the religious elite and the leaders of the day know that their false righteousness and their rule following is not going to help them see the kingdom of God. God doesn't want them talking about where, walking the dog. He wants them actually walking the dog. And then Jesus points out that all these people, these prostitutes and these tax collectors, all these people that society deemed as like unworthy, as lowly, as people that, who shouldn't even be like welcomed in church, Uh, much less the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, actually, they're going to be the ones who are going to be in heaven. They're going to be the ones enjoying the kingdom of God because they actually counted on the righteousness of Jesus. They knew they needed it. They knew they were messed up. They knew that they were sinful. And so when Jesus comes and he says, hey, I can forgive you of all of your sins, they were the ones that were like, hey, you know what? I actually need that. Jesus is referencing here John the Baptist coming even before him. John the Baptist's main message was there's someone coming, Jesus is on his way, and so you should repent. You should turn away from what you have been doing and actually turn towards God. Jesus is letting the Pharisees and the religious elite know here that uh, they did not do that and that their false righteousness is not going to be enough. Many people can talk about being a follower of Jesus. Many people can even appear to be doing the will of God. But that is a different thing from actually following Jesus, from actually submitting to his lordship over our lives and being involved in his kingdom. I kind of wonder, this made me think about like uh, when you were a kid and your mom told you to clean your room and you would kind of just like shuffle everything around, you know, you'd like shove stuff under your bed. I was definitely that kid that spent more time scheming of how to get out of cleaning my room than I would have actually just cleaned my room, right? You're like uh, laying flat stuff underneath your covers and then making your bed over it, right? And your mom was never fool- fooled, right? She walked in instantly. She saw junk just under overflowing the underside of your bed and was like, no, you need to clean this room. I feel like sometimes we try and do that with God as well. And God is never fooled. Like, it's ironic that we would try and, like, hide something from the God of the universe who sees and knows everything. Now, we don't do it so, like, tangibly. It's not like one for one where we're just like, oh, I'm going to keep this secret from God. But sometimes we live as if he's not actually seeing everything that happens in our lives, as if we can, like, trick him, as if we could fool him and one day enjoy the kingdom of God. We do so much work to fool ourselves and to try and fool God, and in reality, we're not actually good at either. I wonder if right now we could all take like a brief inventory of our lives. We should ask ourselves the question, do our lives bear fruit? Do they bear kingdom fruit? If someone looked at your life, would they see the fruit of righteousness? Would they see a false righteousness? Would they see a pharisaical impulse to look good on the outside? If we were to look at our own time and the way that we use it, is there kingdom fruit there? If we were to look at our budget and the way that we use that, is there a kingdom investment there? If we were to look at our mind and our heart, what kingdom do they truly love? Jesus knows the answer, even when sometimes we don't. All right, the next parable. Matt Bennett 
Matt Benet has a slum that he rents out. Some tenants move in. He says, pay the rent. They decline. He sends one of his roommates over to check on him, and they kill the roommate. This story is a little graphic. I'm sorry. Uh, he sends another roommate over to check on them, and same story. They kill that guy. Finally, he thinks, surely they will not kill my beloved son, Josh Fraze. Josh Fraze goes, and they kill him too, thinking that somehow this means they'll get to move up to the meat locker. Not true. Matt kills them all and does a better background check on his next tenants. The end. <laughs> Jesus said to them in verse 42, now I'm back to real, real scripture. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus here is citing Psalm 118. This psalm gets referenced about Jesus by Luke in the book of Acts and by Peter in 1 Peter. And then also Jesus uses it for himself in Matthew here. Clearly, this was an important Old Testament reference to Jesus. So you have to ask, what exactly is he talking about with this stone that the builders rejected? Clearly, Jesus here is referencing himself. He's saying, hey, I am the one rock that you guys have been rejecting. You're trying to build this temple out of something else that is not me, and it is not going to work out well for you. The religious elite had been abusing God's gift to them. They were God's chosen people. They were Israelites. They were followers of God, but they were not producing the fruit that God had designed. They weren't building the kingdom of God on earth. They weren't a holy priesthood. It's biblical language used to refer to the nation of Israel. If you're ever sort of like hung up on this, like, well, why is this one nation singled out among the rest of them? It's because they were supposed to be a nation of priests. They were supposed to be a nation that was a go-between between God and the rest of humanity. They're supposed to stand between them and actually help the rest of humanity become right with God, and instead, they weren't. They weren't a beacon of truth. They weren't the standard of justice for all other nations of the earth. And so, when God would actually send his son, they would kill him too. He was the stone that they rejected. He was the cornerstone on which the entire kingdom of God was built, and still they rejected him. Here's the last parable. <clears throat> Imagine that Aaron Henson is throwing a party. She invites people at church, and people just ignore her. She sends Will to some people's house to personally invite them. He goes to Wade and Elva's house. They treat Will shamefully, and they kill him. Also dark. Aaron reacts by burning down their apartment and all of Lux at Mile High. Then, still moving forward with her party, you guys know how Aaron loves to party, she sends out her friends to find people up and down Colfax to join the party. All right. Then, at the party, she walks up to one of the guests. He's wearing a Golden State Warriors jersey, so she chucks him back out on the street. This one is a little bit weird, right? A lot of ups and downs there, uh, and I definitely went even shorter than the actual parable. The first half is easy enough to understand, I think, right? God here is inviting the Israelites to follow him, so he sends Jesus to him to invite, or to them to invite them. And the Pharisees were the people who should have been invited first, right? They're the religious elite. They're people that are already trying to follow God. They should have been invited first, and they completely reject him. They just say no. God tells, or Jesus tells them exactly what will happen to people who reject the good invitation of God. The second half, though, I think is quite weird and a little scary. 
I'll read it again. It's in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So to place it back into the metaphor here, the people who should have rejected or accepted God's invitation rejected it and were destroyed. Others were brought in. One of them was improperly dressed and thrown out because of it. That's the part that's like got me reeling a little bit, right? Like that's kind of crazy. Like I get it for people that just look at Jesus, they hear his good news message, and they're like, no, I don't want that. Like in some ways they're choosing their own ending to their story, right? How would they be welcomed into the kingdom of God if they outright rejected Jesus? But then here's this guy who gets sort of like in on the second round of invitations, and he shows up. He's not wearing the right clothes, and because of that, he gets thrown out of the kingdom of God. So what does this all mean? First off, don't get too hung up on the many are called. Uh, but few are chosen kind of language. This usage called here is not the same way that like Paul uses it in Romans 8. It could mean that many or even all are invited, uh, but few are chosen. It's also interesting to note that while we're on it, this is one of those weird passages in Scripture where the sovereignty of God is completely upheld and recognized, and the free will of man is also upheld to a degree, meaning that God is like completely in charge, and we can make real choices and decisions at the same time. Ultimately, here, the sovereignty of God wins out, and we must remember that God is actually the arbiter and the decision maker of who actually goes to heaven. But what is it exactly that the man, had to, or the man did to get kicked out of the feast? I had to read and study more than usual to get the meaning of this one, and there are multiple possibilities. D.A. Carson actually even says, maybe we should just leave it alone, leave it a little vague, leave it as a mystery. And while that may be true, I think that uh, I have two quotes from two different uh, authors here. One of them, John Nolan, the other one, our friend Craig from down the street, and I think uh, that they're probably on the best track here. John Nolan says this, If the first part of the parable has to do with the decisive exclusion and replacement of those who fail to honor the summons when the wedding feast is ready, the second part of the parable has to do with the impossibility of coming to the wedding feast on one's own terms. Craig Blomberg is a little bit more wordy, but he says something very similar. God invites many people of different kinds into his kingdom. Overt rejection of God's invitation leads to eventual retribution, and failure to prepare adequately even when apparently accepted by God proves no less culpable or liable to eternal punishment. Take a second and read through that again. Both of these quotes are telling us that there's sort of like three different categories of people. There are those who reject God's call and will face eternal judgment. There are those who accept God's call but on their own terms, like the man who was improperly dressed, who will face God's judgment. And there were people, or there are those who accept God's call and submit to his lordship and will be in the kingdom of heaven. Those are the three categories. There are no other categories for Jesus in this story. Let's see if we can break it down even further, right? We get those who accept God's call. We understand that. His call is open and available to all. 
In fact, even uh, the Bible tells us that all have the opportunity to even hear from God. In Romans 1, it says this, uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceive, perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. All who reject the clear and plain truth of God will face eternal separation from him. Can I tell you a grave truth? That means that your neighbor who doesn't know God, who doesn't follow God, that you love dearly, they don't just have a different opinion than you. It's not like the best burrito in Denver or electrical car, or electric cars or political parties or anything silly like that that we'd like debate about all the time. This is real, eternal life stuff. Without hearing and accepting the gospel, that neighbor is going to spend eternity in hell separated from God. The same is true of your brother, your sister, your spouse, your friend, your co-worker. Anyone and everyone who has ever lived on this planet is going to end up in one of these two places. This is a hard saying, especially to us as like uh, modern hearers, I think. It just sounds so sort of severe and binary and we kind of like hate that kind of stuff. But Jesus is fairly unequivocal here. In fact, uh, if you're saying to yourself, this is a hard saying and it's difficult to hear, uh, you're in good company. The disciples actually said the same thing to Jesus when he was telling them something very similar. Verse 60, or I'm sorry, John 6, verse 60 says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Verse 65, he says, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I wonder if the fear and the confusion and the pain of thinking about this and thinking about the destination of people that we love, uh, it, can, it can lead you to do a few things. First off, it can lead you to question and walk away from Jesus entirely. It's a fairly common thought, especially among uh, people living in our times, to say, like, well, if that's how the world works according to Jesus, I'm not sure if I want to follow Jesus. Can I just say that's like an exceptionally dangerous way to think about reality? It'd be like showing up to a football game, and then you find out that, you know, like, there's some rule that you don't like, and you're like, well, if that's how football's played, then I guess I'm just going to play it my own way. How's that going to work out? That doesn't work for you. Well, God set up the world to work in a certain way, and we don't have the freedom to even judge whether or not it's the best way. I believe, I have faith, actually, from everything that I know about God, everything that I've seen about God, that it actually is the best way. But to just reject it because it doesn't jive with how we think the world should work, it's a dangerous way to think. The other thing that this idea of heaven and hell could do to you is it could paralyze you with fear. 
can lead you to great depression and sadness over those around you or even those who are already gone. But my hope and my prayer today is that it leads you to desperately and fervently share the good news of Jesus. The only hope of getting into that final category where you spend eternity in the kingdom of God is that people would hear the good news. They would accept the good news. They would embrace it with everything that they have. Pray that it would lead you to pray daily for the souls who are in your circle. You may actually be their best chance to hear the gospel. Like the Holy Spirit might have put you in someone's life just so that they might join you in the kingdom of heaven forever. May this be a challenge and a wake-up call. May it be a call to battle over the souls of our friends. May we leave this place as prayer-filled people who are ready and willing to allow God to use us in his life-changing mission. I have one more grave truth for you. There will be people who show up to heaven thinking that they should be let in, who have tried to have Jesus on their own terms, who will not be welcomed in. They will hear, as Matthew says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If this verse and the parable that we read today don't show you that there will be people who at the end of their lives think that they are going to join Jesus in the kingdom of heaven but actually are not, I don't know what else would. So who is it that will be left outside? I'm not completely sure, but I have some guesses. I think it'll be those of us who think that praying a prayer when we were seven uh, and that counts as following Jesus and that's enough. I think it's possible people might be surprised, those people. I think those who think that they can bend the Bible to suit themselves till nothing is uncomfortable or difficult may find out that the God that they have placed in their own mind is actually just that, not in fact Jesus. I think those of us who think that we can fool God, only offering him half of our heart, only offering him a piece of ourselves, not offering full submission and obedience to him. There's a very good chance we'll be left outside. Today is a day when you must choose. Will you follow Jesus and enjoy his kingdom forever or will you be left outside? If you've never made that decision, today could actually be the day for you. Don't leave this place without making it. The beauty of all of this, <clears throat> which I think Jesus highlighted in our first parable today, comparing the Pharisees to the prostitutes and the tax collectors, 
is that it's not some sort of weird grading scale based on how good you were or anything like that. It's not even like some sort of thing that you have to earn. Like at the end of the day, those who are welcomed into the wedding feast, those who are embraced by the Father, those who are brought into the kingdom of God, are those who actually confess openly, God, I have failed you even recognizing they will continue to fail God. So don't hear me say that I'm, I'm promoting some sort of perfection to get into heaven here because that's not what the Bible teaches. But instead, it'll be those who go to Jesus with open hands, desperately needing the gift of righteousness that he offers to us. That it actually does require perfection to get into heaven, but not yours. It requires Jesus' perfection. All we have to do is accept the invitation extended to us. I pray that we will all do that today. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.